Pray with me, if you will. Father, we thank you for this morning. As we come together during this time, Father, we are in recognition that we are currently engaged in a time of worship. We have been singing worship to you, and now we come with our scriptures open and, and pray that you would help us to do so in a manner that is pleasing unto you. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand this text of scripture more clearly, and Lord, that I would be unimportant to the process, that it would be about you and your word, and that you would help us to understand what you were trying to teach your church and your people through the Apostle Paul in this book that we're studying. So we thank you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Let me just give a quick um, hello to anybody who's visiting here today. I know that there are some visitors out here, friends of mine, but also there may be other folks that are in the group today. So just to to give you a little orientation, uh, my name is Mark Lederbach. I also am one of the elders here at North Wake. I'm not one of the pastors. Our uh, senior pastor, Larry Trotter, is on a six-month sabbatical. So we're in the process of six months in which uh, several folks, either pastors or elders, are doing some of the teaching at North Wake. And we're currently in a study of the book of Galatians, where there's six chapters, and we're starting today chapter three as we dive into the discussion. One of the ways that might help us get started uh, with this, if, if you would think with me for a minute about those moments in life that you might describe as, what were you thinking moments? This is, this is why the uh, television show America's Home Videos has become so famous and has had such a long run because it's just full of those, what were you thinking moments? I was trying to, to think of a good illustration to get us started today and, and think back in my own life. And there's probably many of these stories I could tell, but the, the one that sticks out to me most of, of all of those kind was, took place when I was nine years old. My family, uh, my dad and mom, at three different occasions when we were kids, packed us all up in a station wagon, drove us across country so we could see all the great sights in the, in the America, um, in the United States. And on one of these trips, I was nine years old, and my dad had a, a, a bungee cord that was about 30 feet long. And he was using, yeah, some people are already kind of going, okay, what did you do with this thing? Well, uh, he used it to kind of get all the luggage on the top of the car. There were seven kids in the family, so it was, you know, a stack about four stories high on top of the car. And Anyway, Dad used this bungee cord to kind of help strap those things down. And I was thinking the day before we left for this trip, I wonder how long this thing would stretch. So I took the bungee cord, and I went into my backyard, and, I, and on the, in our backyard, we had a, a stockade fence. That's the kind that's about six feet tall and has those thin strips of wood, and I emphasize thin there. Um, so I took the bungee cord, and I tied it onto the top of the, of the fence, and then I just put it over my shoulder. And <laughs> see how far I could stretch that rascal. I was probably 100 feet away. I turned around, and I'm holding that bungee cord, and I'm looking at it, and all of a sudden, crack. And I can remember to this day. Now, that was almost, see, I'm, I'm 47. I was nine years, so 38 years ago. And I can remember clear as day watching this amoeba-like thing <laughs> coming at my legs. And it, it, it came, and it wrapped all the way around my legs. And this, it just for the rest of the summer, it was like I had tattoos on for the whole second. Literally, I, it was just stripes of bruises all up and down my legs. What was I thinking? You know, in retrospect, it's extremely clear to me how stupid that was. On the front end, it seemed like it was a good idea. Where we are in the book of Galatians is we're at that kind of moment where Paul is going to bring to the Galatian people this question. What are you thinking? 
what are you thinking? Now, to, to kind of give a little bit of context on this, this book that we're studying is one in which there's, a, there's an intense struggle going on in relation to a person's faith and how they understand faith, particularly between a person's faith in an object and the actions that they perform in their life. Uh, to put it another way, the struggle is to understand how we can have a right relationship with God in the first place that's based on faith alone and what role good works or religiosity plays in with that. There is a tendency, I think, in the human heart, whether you are someone who's not yet a believer, someone who's a very young believer, or maybe someone who's been a believer in Jesus Christ for 30 or 40 years, there's a tension that all of us face, and that is, what's the relationship between my faith and what my faith is in and the works or the activities that I do, my religiosity? Well, that comes to a head right here in this passage of the scripture that we've been studying. And so if you have your Bibles, let's flip to Galatians chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 1 through 9 together. Let me read these for you. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing? with faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now, in this book that we're reading here, the particular context that we're in, we're in chapter 3, so there's been two chapters of discussion that's led up to this. Now, contextually, what's happening in this group of people, this is, in modern day, on a map, if you were to find the region of Galatia, it would be in modern day Turkey. Now, what had happened is that the Apostle Paul, leaving Jerusalem, had gone on missionary journeys and shared the gospel with people all the way up through Turkey and into southern parts of Europe. And these people, the Galatians, had come to faith upon hearing the message that Paul had preached to them about Jesus Christ. But there was another group of people that are described as the Judaizers. These were folks who were claiming to be Christians, and they would tend to follow along in the path of where Paul preached, but they would bring in another message. They would say, yes, you need to have faith in Christ, but not just faith in Christ, you also need to follow the Jewish rituals particularly circumcision for males and then Jewish eating rituals or dietary laws in order to be a true Christian. So what they did is they accused Paul of of basically watering down the message of Jesus Christ so that the Gentiles would like him. And they came on the heels of Paul and and began to tell all all these Christians that he had done work with to say, no, actually, unless you do these works of the laws, you can't really be a Christian. You're not a true Christian unless you have these religious works that you do, and uh, you need to adhere to those sorts of things. So in the, in the context of our, our discussion then, in the previous chapter, just before our section, Paul has been making an, a, an argument, if you will. He's been describing how a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ apart from the works of the law. And so last week what we did is we discussed these 
in, by using a couple metaphors. Crucially, in chapter 2, Paul talked about the idea of the justification that needs to take place between us and God. The doctrine is called the justification by faith. And we use two different metaphors to kind of highlight that. This was one of them. I showed you the slide last week. It's the only drawing I could find that was anywhere close to carpentry in relation to this. But the idea is to be properly aligned with God can be understood in the terms of justification. So justification, in other words, could be a carpentry term. In order for the building to be square, you need to have all the boards lined up correctly. Likewise, spiritually, in order for our lives to be properly aligned with God, we need to have certain things in place, and that is our faith in Christ. So justification talks about being rightly aligned. But probably more than a carpentry term is the idea of a legal term. And that would mean that we are declared righteous or without sin before God because of the work of Christ. But not just declared Crucially, the doctrine of justification and what the Bible talks about there is that we have been made clean before God because of what Christ did for us. So the basic points we talked about last week were these ideas. First of all, that no human being is in right relationship with God because all of us have sinned and all of us fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, we cannot come to God on our own. We needed Jesus to die on the cross for us so that we could then be rightly aligned with God. So that's the background context. Now, where we come today in our discussion, we can probably look at this in, in two different sections, and that's what we'll do with our time together today. Verses 1 through 5 of Galatians chapter 3, what they do is part 1, and, and in this section, Paul basically fires a series of questions at the Galatians because he's frustrated with them. He's, he's livid, if you will, that they have once held on to a certain belief, and now they're abandoning it for a different belief. So we'll talk about those in verses 1 through 5, and then verses 6 through 9. He then moves to the discussion of Abraham as the primary example who's a person of faith. So we'll try to see why, in part 2, Paul uses Abraham, this, this Jewish father of the faith, in order to describe in perfection how a person could have faith. So let's look, first of all, at this uh, uh, section 1. And what we're going to do during this time is, let me, let me actually get you to look back at your text of Scripture. I'm going to read this 1 through 5 again, and then let me retranslate those questions for you in modern English. Okay, so he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works, uh, spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, in modern English, there's a way to understand those would be this way. There's one question for each of these five verses. Verse 3 actually has two in there, but it really reads as one major question. The first question in verse 1 would be like this. Have you become confused over something that was obviously clear to you? Explain to me, verse 2, explain to me how you became confused when you yourself experienced God's blessings in your life. Verse 3, the third question, how could you be so foolish that once you once understood and personally tasted that you would give it away? Verse 4, you know, you, you even went through suffering and ridicule when you converted to Christianity and your friends didn't and they made fun of you and they even persecuted you? 
Are you now saying that was all in vain, all worthless? And then the fifth question, are you really willing to say that the Holy Spirit came into you and lives in you and God does miracles in you because you're such a good person? Or is it because of faith and God's mercies? Now, I think in order to really capture this whole section of Scripture, verses 1 through 5, we really only need to focus on verse 1, and that's where I want to spend the majority of our time here in this first part, is to focus on verse 1 by looking at four different phrases. I have three of them listed on the board here behind me. So let's look down at the text of Scripture again and see what Paul says here in verse 1. First of all, he comes in and he describes them right here as, You foolish Galatians. Obviously a way to win friends and influence people. Yeah. Just start off with nice, kind words and jump right in there. But obviously Paul is impassioned by what's happening here. Something is going on that's making him really just, he's, he's livid, and he wants to stop and shake these folks. What's going on? Now the term foolish, in its original language, you should understand it. He's not saying that it's just silly. It's not like a fourth or fifth grader who's just doing something that's just kind of childish or silly. Okay, so that's not what he means there. He's also not suggesting that the Galatian folks are deceived. Okay, he's not suggesting that they're just, they don't know any better. Really what the term foolish means, actually from the, the Greek language it comes from, it has more of the idea that they're disordered in their mind. In other words, are you crazy? is in essence what he's saying to these folks. And if you put it together with the second word, which I'll describe in just a minute, he's basically saying this is beyond deception and it's more closely related to being carried away because someone's cast a spell on you. He insinuates, if you will, that their fall from understanding was more madness than folly. Now, any parent of a teenager could probably relate with how Paul was feeling at this moment. Now, sorry if I'm going to pick on you teens for a few minutes, but us parents have kind of an unwritten code. There are a lot of things we don't say that stay internal to us when we uh, watch you live your lives, and I'm sure our parents did the same thing for us. Phrases like this should come to your mind as you try to understand what Paul's feeling here at this moment. Are you crazy? You did what? What's up with that, man? What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> With respects to Gary Coleman, passed away this weekend. What were you thinking? Obviously, your brain was not turned on when you decided to do what you just did. Somewhere between the age of 14 and 19, you've just turned everything off, and I don't understand how you got to where you are, but you're there, and it's crazy. Those are the things parents don't say out loud. Are you really my child? Does that really come from my gene pool? Now, I'm not really actually picking on you from 14 to 19-year-olds because all of us have these moments in life. I've already described a serious knucklehead one on my part. But what Paul is trying to get us to understand here in this text of Scripture is he's writing to the Galatians. It's that kind of thought. Is How could you be thinking this after it was so clear in your mind? And Indeed, that leads us to the second term up here, the term bewitched, actually from the Greek language, is baskino, and it means basically to bring evil upon, or to charm, or to enchant, but you don't want to think of the enchantment like you might see in a lot of popular movies to teenage girls right now. Rather, you want to be thinking about this along the lines of casting an evil spell. So in other words, 
Paul is saying to them, the only explanation that I can come up with for why you have begun to move away from the clarity of the idea that you can only be right with God because of faith in Christ and what he did for you, the only reason I can understand you moving away from this is that someone literally has cast a spell on you. Has someone bewitched you? John Calvin, the great reformer, in his commentary on Galatians says it this way, it looks like something supernatural is taking place. That after enjoying the gospel in such clearness, they should be affected by the delusions of Satan. He does not merely say that they were bewitched and disordered of mind because they did not obey the truth, but because having received the instruction in such clear and unambiguous way, in a manner that was so full of power and tenderness that they could have possibly fallen away. Paul doesn't know how else to describe this. Now, a third phrase in this text of Scripture in uh, verse 1 here, he says, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed. Now, this is an interesting little phrase that Paul would make here because the understanding would, if you're not careful, you might think, does that mean not all the people that lived in Galatia up in Turkey actually were in Jerusalem and watched Jesus crucified? Is that what Paul means when he says publicly portrayed? Well, no, obviously he doesn't. So what's happening here in the English is trying to capture something that's a little bit more clear in the Greek text that was originally written in. The word that's used here is proepigraphin. And what it basically means is this idea. Um, When you drove to church today, I don't know if you paid any attention to it, but you probably passed by maybe between 50 and 100 different signs on the road. Street signs, speed limit signs, uh, don't park here signs, for sale signs, all kinds of different signs on the side of the road. And we're just littered with them in our society. But if you can think back to 2,000 years ago, what a culture would be like, to have signs would be a pretty rare thing. And indeed, that's exactly what Paul's saying here. Oftentimes what happens, I've traveled in third world countries, you still see this, where they don't have great technology. Oftentimes they'll just have one basically large community bulletin board where anything that needs to be communicated will be communicated by being plastered to that board so that everybody would see that and that would be the clear place of communication. Similar then to that idea is what Paul is saying here. He's saying that there are uh, the idea that I described to you about the, the, the Christian faith was so clear that it's like that bulletin board. Now in our culture, the closest thing to this would be a huge billboard. And of course, when I thought about that, it started to make me think about famous signs that we have in our culture that people just recognize because they're clear and they're in your mind, even if you haven't been there. Let me give you a few examples of these. You may have never been to Las Vegas, but you've probably seen enough movies that you just, even if it didn't say this, the shape and all of the sign would be something that you would recognize. Another one of those would be in Hollywood, California. Even if you've never been to Hollywood, there's just signs that people see, and you know them, their recognition. Even if you couldn't read, you probably would have seen that term before. Now, there are other signs in the society that we have. Here's here's some examples. Some of these are uh, very clear, a little weird. Here's a sign that was actually similar to that one. You might not be able to read it. This one is on a bar. It says, children left unattended at our bar will be given espresso and a puppy. Some other clear signs that people put up. Trespassing, no, no trespassing violators will be shot. Survivors will be shot again. I guess they don't want you on their land. They probably had this sign up too. Now, in our culture, not all signs are, uh, they make a whole lot of sense. For example, here's another one. 
Or how about if you saw this sign, would you have much confidence in that? It says on the bottom, learn to fly here. Sometimes they're just confusing. <laughs> now, sometimes the signs in our culture are ambiguous. So take a look at this one. Christ died for our, just the placement of it just didn't work out all that well. Or this one on a marquee of a local church. Don't let your worries kill you, let the church help. LAUGHTER Paul's actually talking about something a little more clear than these. Signs like this are very, very clear. You don't need much, and you get the entire message. We see signs like these in our culture for sale or help wanted. Paul is telling us in the book of Galatians that something was portrayed so clear so rivetingly clear to the Galatian people that even if they had been in Jerusalem to see the crucifixion take place, it would not have been any clearer than the way that Paul had brought the message to them. And this is why he's absolutely dumbfounded. You see, crucially, the fourth phrase that we need to understand for this discussion today from Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, is the word crucified. I want you to think with me for a minute on here. He says again, let me read the verse. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you crazy? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been publicly portrayed? But notice that he says, as crucified here. Now, the reason why this is really interesting is that in our culture, in, in modern-day the United States, you hear a lot of Christians will talk primarily about the resurrection of Jesus Christ because there are many people in our culture that don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, that wasn't the problem with the, Corinthian, or excuse me, the Galatian believers here. Rather, they understood that Jesus had risen from the dead, so he's not going to use that as the point of, com- of conversation, but rather there's something crucial about the crucifixion that was going on with this church. Why the crucifixion? Well, Paul himself would later tell the Christians and Corinthians that if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then everything they believed was foolish. And we would echo that idea. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then our faith is foolishness. But for the Galatians, they were struggling over the idea of why Jesus had to die. Why the crucifixion? In other words, it seems that the primary concern with the way the Galatians were working was challenging the very notion of Jesus' death on the cross. Now, this obviously begs two questions from us. Let me, let me show you what, those, what I think that those are. In terms of real-life application for us, this seems to beg two questions. The first question is, why did Jesus Christ have to die with the emphasis on the word have to? Our culture asks this question, and I think once we ask that question, it begs the second question from us, is that is, are there any ways which we as a culture and we as a people tend to be bewitched, if you will? If I restate the first question in the way it's oftentimes answered in our culture, it sounds a lot like this. Couldn't Jesus have just simply lived a good moral life and gone back to heaven? We hear that all the time in our culture. Why did Jesus have to die? And indeed, someone might even say something like this. Wasn't Jesus' death merely an example and indeed the supreme example of a loving person giving themselves away for others? 
Well, contrary to these popular ideas of culture, the crucifixion means so much more. It means so much more. And indeed, it, I would suggest to you that it is the question of Christianity. It's the question of this entire book. Why did Jesus have to die? Now, we discussed this to some degree last week, and I think it's important for us to focus our attention on this again right here. And what I've done is I've listed out several scriptures that you won't have to flip to so that you can kind of see them a little bit more quickly here, and I can just highlight these for you. The reason Jesus had to die Scriptures tell us in the book of Romans, St. Paul, the same author of that book, writing to the Christians in Romans, describes the human race by saying this, there is no one who's righteous, not even one. There's no one who stands before God with their relationship intact. Now, some folks would say, yeah, okay, Mark, but we're really not that bad off. Well, Jesus' own half-brother, James, wrote it this way. He said, Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, in God's eyes, it's as if they're guilty of breaking the whole law. To understand this, it would be like throwing a rock through a window. It's only one rock shatters the whole window. So our standing before God is such that we are guilty. And you know, even our best activities, the scripture says, are not even close to what would please God. Isaiah 64, 6 says this, For all of us have become one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds, if you could read that by saying, even our best acts are like filthy rags before God. Now consider what this means in terms of Jesus as our example. Folks, even if Jesus was the perfect example for us, which I believe he was, but if that was the only reason he came to live on this planet to give us an example Think of the frustration for us. Jesus gives an example we simply cannot follow. That leaves us in abject frustration. If that's the only reason Jesus came was, was to give us an example and we can't follow it, how frustrating would that be? But God, being rich in mercy, did something far more beautiful than provide an example. He died on the cross to substitute for me. And for you to take the penalty of our sin. And the way this is described scripturally is really captured very beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He, being God, made Jesus, to, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So the first half of that verse is basically saying that Jesus comes, he lives his life here, and when he dies on the cross at the crucifixion, our sins can be placed upon Christ. That's the first half of the verse. The second half is that so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So at the crucifixion, he takes on my sin and his righteousness is given to me. The scriptures teach that this idea is the core of Christianity. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead to demonstrate the power of that truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, follow with me here as I read this one. You'll see how Paul describes this. He says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the words I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you, listen to this, of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was raised 
on the third day, according to our scriptures. Last week I touched on this point. Let me, let me see if I can kind of reiterate it here this week. There are some that will describe Christianity as arrogant for claiming to be the only way to be right with God. Hopefully it's a little bit clearer to you now as we've looked at Galatians chapter 3. Paul's saying the reason why this is not arrogance is because there's no other world religion that has God come in the flesh and pay your penalty for you and for me. Indeed, the very idea that God would love us like that is the biggest mural that you could ever imagine, the hugest billboard in the sky of God's mercies and God's grace, not God's arrogance. The very idea that God's death on the cross was not enough is what's truly arrogant. The very idea that there are other ways to God when Jesus himself says there is no other way to God would seem to be more arrogant because it's saying Jesus was wrong. Let me explain that a little bit more clearly by showing you Jesus' own words. Jesus says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life and nobody comes to the Father but through me. So contrary to arrogance on the part of Christians, this is the picture of humility because a Christian has to say, the only way that I come to God is as a beggar who has nothing to offer. And yet God, because he's rich in mercy, opens up his arms and he dies on the cross in order to pay for me. You see, what I think would be truly arrogant is to say that that wasn't enough. Indeed, that would seem to throw mud on the cross and display the true arrogance of someone that says, Jesus' death on the cross was not enough. I got to help him out by doing some work. And this is why Paul was so frustrated. You see, the billboard, if you will, was this. No help wanted. And the billboard looked like this. This, my dear friends, is the core of Christianity. Jesus paid it all. So the follow-up question then for us might be, are there ways that we as a culture are bewitched on this? Is there an application from the Galatian church to our own? Well, actually, I think there are a lot of examples that I could give you of this. uh, Let me give you uh, several. First of all, I... Uh, one of them, which is most clear in my memory, I actually was interviewing for a job. This is about 12 years ago, so I have no idea if any of these folks are still at the place I'm about to mention. But while I was a student at University of Virginia getting my Ph.D., I was interviewing for different jobs to teach. And I went down to Wingate University, which is a Christian college in North Carolina. And while interviewing for the job at Wingate to teach in the religion department, the uh, head of the religion department at the time stopped me in my, my conversation and he said, Now, Mark, I want you to know that I I consider myself a Sermon on the Mount Christian. I said, okay, well, that's interesting. Can you tell me what that means? Now, this is the head of the religion department at a Christian college. He said, I don't know whether God exists, and I don't know whether Jesus exists. But I think Jesus gave good moral teachings, and so that's the kind of Christian that I am. 
I was watching Matt Lauer on Good Morning America who described himself as a person who was, who was very interested in religious things, but he had no idea whether God existed or not. I thought, now that's interesting. And it reflects what I think is, happens in our culture. There's a book by Robert Bella. It's called Habits of the Heart. Robert Bella is a sociologist who went around and he did a massive study of American culture. And in his study of American culture, he described Americans' religion in the term called Sheilaism. And the way he got that term Sheilaism is he, he interviewed this one lady named Sheila who was really the epitome of what he described as, that he found in his, in his uh, surveys. Sheila made the comment that she doesn't know if there's one way to heaven or whether God exists at all, but what matters to her is that she personally has a, has a desire to be spiritual. And Robert Bella describes that as the American religion now, that it doesn't matter whether there's anything out there. What matters is that you're authentic. Probably one of the most poignant ways you might have seen this, if any of you have watched television in the last six years, you've probably at least seen commercials for the television show Lost. I'm about to give you a spoiler if you haven't seen the conclusion, okay? This is a six-year journey where it was some of the best television, I think most people agree, that has ever been done in the United States. But the last... uh, The last episode ended in a very unique and interesting way. Now, if if you don't know the show, I won't go into explaining a whole lot about it, but here's the crucial part of it. You have this six-year journey where these people are lost on an island, and there's a lot of spiritual language going on for six years. And then in the last episode, you have this man whose face you can see. His name is, no subtlety here, Christian Shepherd. And he's talking to his son, whose name is Jack Shepard. Jack's the man whose back's to you on here. Now, Jack's been going on this journey for six years. And now at the last episode, they come to a church. And so if you're a Christian, you're thinking, oh, they might do something that's somewhat redemptive in the, in the church scene. But look what's in the stained glass window. You see, what was portrayed by the show is that there are many ways to heaven, that all the religions are ultimately the same. The main thing that matters is that during the life that you live here, you create your own future reality. Now, folks, that might be popular in the culture, but Jesus left no room for that. See, Jesus himself didn't leave any room for that. It seems to me like that that stained glass window is a little bit more arrogant because it's saying that Jesus was wrong, and so was Buddha, and so was Muhammad, so was Abraham. That seems a little bit more arrogant because each one of those religions excluded the others. Here's what C.S. Lewis says in regard to this idea that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. This is a little bit complicated, but let me work it through for you. On the top, this is the data of things Jesus basically said. Jesus said some strange things. He said that he would forgive everybody's sins, and Jesus claimed to be God. I've already shown you that claim in John 14, chapter 6. That's, that's just a fact of what Jesus claimed. So that leaves us with some alternatives. One of those alternatives might be that Jesus was a liar because if he wasn't God, he can't forgive sins. And he wasn't God. So he was claiming to be so, but so that would leave the option of him being a liar. The second option would be that he would be a lunatic because really only loony people claim to be God. Or it's true that he's Lord and that we need to bow to him as Lord. But notice, there's no option for good moral teacher. 
Good moral teachers aren't crazy, and they don't lie. And so we then are left that either Jesus was insane or evil, or he's God. And we need to deal with that. And for this reason, Paul is saying to these folks, and he's saying to us, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Well, transitioning from that then to the second half of our discussion, look back in your text. Let me read this verse again for you. Verses 6 through 9 in Galatians chapter 3 reads this way. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Martin Luther describes this as the masterful stroke of, of Paul's discussion here because notice what, Abraham, or what Paul does. He's talking to Christians in Galatia who are struggling now and trying to add something to the message of Christianity by saying you have to follow these rituals. And what he does is he says, okay, look, these Jewish folks, these Judaizers who are coming in to get you to do these rituals, they don't even know what they're talking about. In fact, let's show you this, because if you go back to the roots of the faith, the father of Judaism is Abraham. And the person who wrote about Abraham in the Bible is Moses. So the two most important figures for the Jewish tradition are going to teach you something about how you are rightly related with God. Now, the promises that were given that Paul's referred to in the scriptures are these. From Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and then from Genesis chapter 15. Let me read this first one to you. God promised this to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and, I will give you, uh, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And then in our passage, this is the section that Paul refers to. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, Abraham goes on in his life as he gets this promise from God, but as he gets older, he doesn't have any of his own children with his wife, Sarah. And so in chapter 15, he has this discussion with God. Now, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham says, O sovereign God, who can you, um, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. But then listen to the word of the Lord in reply. This is really beautiful. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took Abraham outside and he points up to the stars in the skies and he says, Look at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can even count them, and then he said to Abraham, your, so shall your offspring be. And we see Abraham's response, even though he doesn't have the promise in hand yet, is he believed God. And that was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, what did he believe? Did he just believe that he was going to get children? Or perhaps if we go back on the slide, did he believe the part where God said, I am your shield. I am your great reward. You see, folks, Abraham's faith 
wasn't just a faith that was untethered. It wasn't just a faith that was out there. He didn't just have some kind of loose faith or I believe in niceness. Abraham's faith was tied to the fact that God was going to be his great reward. If you will, God himself is the gospel. One of the other things that happens in our culture is a very interesting phenomenon. Our culture tends to have the idea that as long as you have faith, that's all that matters. Now imagine, if you will, let me just give you this illustration. I have, uh, I'm going on a walk in the woods in the wintertime, and I come to a lake. And the lake has a sign up on it that says, Danger Thin Ice. But I say to myself, I don't care how thin that ice is. I have plenty of faith. And so I decide I'm going to venture out onto the ice, even though I can look at it and see it just has a thin layer of ice on it. But I have all the faith in the world that that ice is going to hold me up. Will it hold me up? Why not? Well, the reason why is because the object of faith is unworthy of my faith. You see, what we're being taught here from Paul is not that you have faith, period, but that you have faith in the object that is worthy of your faith, and that is God himself and his promises. We sang this morning, all the promises of Christ or of God are yes in Christ. You may have all the faith in the world, but if your faith is misdirected, it is a foolish faith. And Paul is saying to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians, what's bewitched you? You once tasted the goodness of this. You're throwing it away. Paul finishes this passage by saying this. Those who claim to be the true heirs of Abraham are wrong to think that it comes through their bloodline. The true children of Abraham are people who have faith like Abraham had faith in God and his promises. The fulfillment of that was the billboard of Jesus Christ. The billboard says, no help wanted. Jesus paid it all. And this is what Paul means in Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, when he says, now these promises that were given to Abraham will be fulfilled. It's for anybody, from any people, from any tribe, from any tongue, from any nation, who placed their faith in Christ they will become the true children of Abraham. So through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. I think it's wise for us to, to come to conclusion today by simply just pointing out some application for you all to just think through today. The band's going to come up. But as we, as we close, let's... Let's draw this together by some, some application for you all to think through. For some of you here today, you may be either brand new in your faith or you may be not yet believers, people who are thinking about the, the faith in Christ and trying to understand what that's all about. 
For you, it's crucial to understand that if you're serious about coming to understand Christianity, the crucifixion is the core element to understand what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus paid it all. And our efforts to clean ourselves up are not going to be something that makes us worthy of God. But some of you here, like myself, have been Christians for a long time. And what we have the tendency to do is to do like the Galatian folks, even though we've tasted faith in God based on on what Jesus did for us, we have the tendency to think after we've blown it that somehow we have to clean ourselves up in order to have right standing with God. So at the end of this service, we're at the same place we were last week. There's a recognition that Jesus paid it all. And as a matter of what we've done, we can't clean ourselves up. What we do is we come in submission before the king and say, I come as a beggar. Thank you for the cross. And that becomes the basis of true worship. Let me pray for us, and as we do, as the band will, will lead us in a song afterwards, if any of you would like to respond by coming forward, in our, it's our tradition here at North Wakes that sometimes folks come and they, they kneel down at the, at the steps here. There's nothing magical about that. It's just simply a way that some folks like to respond to the Lord. You can do the same in your seat if you'd like. But let's pray and ask the Lord to help us keep clear the gospel in our lives. And as the band leads us in one more song of worship, that that would be our hearts before God. Father, we thank you that Christ came and that he died on the cross for our sins. There is no other way. We are all beggars. We're paupers with nothing to offer you. Father, you know my own story. I spent so many years of my life through my own religious upbringing trying to make myself clean before you. But Father, we can't. So today we thank you for the cross, for the billboard that helps us to understand that the only way we can be rightly aligned with you to be justified to you is because of Christ's work on our behalf. And so we thank you for that today. And once again, we ask that you help us live in that truth. We pray this in Christ's name.